Okay, so uh, open up your Bibles, if you don't already, to Genesis 28. Genesis chapter 28, I'm going to read through it, and then we'll go back and, and walk through it. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and commanded him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become an assembly of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, and the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And Jacob had listened to his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan were displeasing to the sight of his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife besides the wives that he had. And then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and lay down in that place. Then he had a dream, and behold, a ladder stood on the earth with its top touching heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. And your seed will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he, was and he was afraid and said, how fearsome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So J Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil over on, on its top. And he called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and, and will keep me in this journey, which I am on which I am going and will give me food to eat and garments to wear. And I return to my father's house in peace. Then Yahweh will be my God. Now, this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Word of the Lord. So. Today, as you know, is Super Bowl Sunday. 
So we're going to talk about Jesus through the lens of football metaphors all day long. <laughs> you know, Jesus is our quarterback and he's giving us the ball. Just kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure there are many churches, as you mentioned, that are doing stuff like that today. And, and that kind of ties in with what I'm going to start off talking about. That kind of thing is all part of the modern day evangelical megachurch evangelical experience. Many churches in our modern culture strive to create a spiritual experience for those who enter their doors. Um, walking into these churches is like walking into a mall sometimes. There's these big giant things, complete with a Starbucks-like coffee shop. <laughs> and then you enter into the sanctuary and it's usually very dimly lit and the lights are all focused on the stage like at a concert or a performance. And this is all purposeful because these so-called worship services, they are more like performances intended to create a sensory experience for the audience. They have big screens that project images that intended to make you feel more spiritual. Some churches even have used smoke machines and full light shows that coincide with a worship band that rocks out all the latest Jesus is my boyfriend contemporary hits. And then a winsome, witty, hip, skinny jean wearing pastor with $800 sneakers tugs on your heartstrings with an emotional, well-crafted, all-inclusive, woke, new age, unbiblical speech that teaches you how to love yourself and recognize how valuable and needed you are to God. And that you deserve the best in life because you lifted yourself up to choose God and you are climbing that ladder to heaven. Very little, if anything, in many of these places is mentioned about repentance of sin or dying to self or the mortification of the flesh, which what Mark Choma taught on last week. And these sensory experience-based focused churches generally do not teach sound biblical doctrine. But in all of this, the goal of these types of churches is to, again, manufacture a spiritual experience that will keep you coming back every week. But these manufactured pseudo-spiritual experiences that appeal to the senses, that appeal to the flesh, they do not bring dead spiritual hearts to life, nor do they sustain the heart of the Christian to persevere in that person's walk with Christ. Only God does this through the gospel and through his word uh, in people that have been regenerated, that have been born again of the Holy Spirit. Yet churches throughout history have often strived to manufacture these spiritual experiences using physical elements, whether it's the giant cathedrals of old with the stained glass windows and the Gothic architecture and the sacred spaces and decorated beautiful statues with uh, priestly vestments. I was in a church yesterday at, at uh, Mark Choma's mother's funeral. It was a, kind of an Eastern Orthodox Catholic church. And oh my gosh, it was so ornate and all the little stuff they're doing and the smoke coming up from the incense and all intended to create a sensory experience. And then you have the modern mega church complex with the high-tech productions and performances that look like the world. In all of that, a great deal of time and energy and money has been spent on creating an eternally meaningless experience. It's like they're trying to build a tower to reach heaven, just like Nimrod did with the Tower of Babel. But in our passage today, God gives Jacob a vision of God coming down to us through his angels on a ladder. Now, I hate ladders. <laughs> 
ever since I fell off one back in 2018, putting Christmas lights on my house and smashed my head on the driveway. But I love this ladder because I don't have to climb it. God has it covered. And that's kind of the, the theme of what we're going to be looking at today. Anyway, Jacob, after leaving home because he was afraid that his brother Esau would, would kill him, uh, stopped in some random place between Beersheba and Haran, a place called Luz. And he slept outside using a rock as his pillow. Hardly the environment that one would think uh, would create a life-changing spiritual experience. He had no cushioned seat. He had no cafe latte, no music, no smoke machines, no light show, no stage, no super hip woke pastor. Yet God manufactured a life-changing experience in Jacob that no megachurch could ever recreate with fog machines and big screens. He gave Jacob a vision of a ladder wherein angels were ascending and descending, doing God's work on earth. And not only that, but God answered Isaac's prayer that we read in verse 4 and spoke directly to Jacob, reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant with him promising Jacob that he would bring him back into the land of Canaan and that that land would that, that same land that would be named after Jacob in the future the land of Israel and that was certainly an experience that eternally changed Jacob's life but it was the word of God that did it it was the it wasn't the vision it wasn't the environment it was God speaking directly to Jacob that changed his life it left such an impression on him that he erected this stone that he slept on like a pillar as a monument to this experience. He even anointed it with oil, which was a symbolic act of consecrating it or setting it apart for the Lord for his purpose. Jacob, to put it simply, was on fire for the Lord after this dream. He also changed the name of that place that he was in from Luz, which means separation, and changed it to Bethel. Bethel which means house of God. And this is prophetically meaningful in itself. I mean, we are all born into separation from God, separation from heaven. But God revealed to us a ladder where he would descend to accomplish redemption for us, that he may abide in us, that we may be the house of God on earth, the church. But it was ultimately God speaking that gave meaning to this vision and to the rock, and to that place. Apart from God's word, apart from God speaking directly to Jacob, Jacob just had a weird dream while sleeping on a very uncomfortable rock in a desolate place. But that's why we here in this church are so committed to presenting God's word to you as it is written, for it is God speaking to us. Therefore, we all strive to rightly discern the word of truth and apply it in a biblically consistent manner, um, as the authors of the scriptures intended, as the author, the Holy Spirit, intended. We don't interpret it through man-made philosophy or worldly values or our own subjective opinions of what scripture says. No, we strive to let the Bible interpret itself as the ultimate standard of truth and rest in that truth. We don't strive to entertain or create a spiritual atmosphere that somehow helps us to better hear the word of, voice of God. No, God gives us ears to hear his, his voice. We are his sheep. And when churches use fleshly things 
to invoke some kind of emotional, so-called spiritual experience, they are not practicing biblical Christianity. Essentially, they are mixing in paganism. What I saw yesterday in that Catholic church, that was predominantly paganism, more than anything that was Christian that was proclaimed. And whenever paganism is mixed in, the teaching of the word of God becomes diluted, diminished, and ultimately dismissed while worldly values and a false Christ becomes the focus. This is generally what we see happening in these sensory experience-based churches, a diluted, diminishing, and dismissal of God's word. But let's consider a key passage that we really should have memorized. In Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days talking about the church age. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God spoke directly to, man, to men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in our passage today. He spoke directly to Moses and the prophets. But today, he speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And how does he, how does he speak to us through Jesus? Because Jesus ain't here talking to us in person. We don't hear a voice, hopefully. <laughs> um, so how do we know Jesus is speaking to us? We don't rely on dreams and visions like the prophets of old do or did. Uh, no, we know Christ is speaking to us through his God-breathed, inerrant word, the Bible. We cannot separate Jesus Christ from his word. Though many today, many very popular pastors today are doing just this. They're saying, don't worry, don't trust the Bible. Just look to Jesus. Also, there is no private interpretation of God's word. What God said to the first century church through the apostles, he is saying to us through his inerrant scriptures. And when I say inerrant scriptures, I mean that the Bible is without error with regard to the message that God has given us. And what this book says is true and is the standard by which we are to measure all things to be true or not. And sadly, there are many so-called churches today that who intentionally reject the inerrancy of Scripture, and they try to separate Christ from the Scriptures. And thus, they place no faith in the sufficiency of Scripture to provide answers for today's issues and guide them in the faith. Not because they have found any kind of legitimate errors in the Bible or contradictions in the text, because there are none. Oh yes, they may try to cite uh, some apparent contradictions, but the contradictions are always manufactured by their ignorance of the biblical context or by imposing some kind of worldly standard on the text. Therefore, these so-called ministers who do this pick and choose what they want to believe from the scriptures. because. Some of this stuff in this book is just offensive to worldly people. So people feel more comfortable in their sinfulness. So they, so they, they, they want to create what's called safe spaces. Now, I hear this all the time now. Churches describe themselves as safe spaces in their online descriptions. The former president of the Southern Baptist Convention just said that churches should be the safest, safest spaces on the planet. But what exactly is a safe space? Well, the dictionary defines it as a place or an environment in which a person or a category of people 
can feel confident that they will not be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or any other emotional or physical harm. And on the surface, this sounds good until you realize that people who subscribe to this safe space um, mentality view the act of calling people to repentance from sin as a form of discrimination, as a form of criticism, as a form of harassment that causes emotional harm. You say there's one way to God. They say that's a form of discrimination. I'm sorry, but the gathering of God's people, the church, was never intended to be a safe space by this definition. It is a place where conviction happens. It's a place where accountability happens, where repentance is required or discipline happens. It's a place where we expose and promote discrimination against sinfulness and godlessness. It's a place where we do not compromise on the truth to attain unity. It's a place where walls are broken down and emotional, where an emotional pain is felt as the dark rooms of our sinful hearts are exposed by the light of Christ through his word. It's a place where sometimes persecution happens, which can bring about physical harm. Many Christians throughout history, even today, knowingly risk physical harm just by gathering in the church. No, we are on the front lines of a spiritual war, and this is not a safe space. But the mainstream American evangelical safe space church gives the attendee a latte and a scone and ushers him or her into that, or they, into that nice cushioned seat where they are entertained and, and encouraged in the sinful state that they are living in. And these so-called pastors are ever careful to not offend in any way and not say anything that might somehow invoke persecution from the world. And in so doing, they are not acting as shepherds of the flock, but they are acting more like wolves. And this is why I think it's so important for us to call out these types of pastors who teach this, who deceive the church, especially the really popular ones, who get all kinds of uh, platforms to speak at. They pretend to speak for God and yet deny his word. The very word which God said by which he is speaking to us. Andy Stanley is one such wolf. Now bear with me because this will have relevance to our text today. But Andy Stanley is the lead pastor of North Point Community Church in Atlanta. A church that has 50,000 congregants. 50,000. Sadly, he rejects the inerrancy of scripture and every week teaches tens of thousands to doubt God's word. Oh, he names the name of Jesus, but Stanley denies the authority of his word, which allows him to define Jesus any way he wants to. Andy Stanley is basically a minister of Satan. Because remember, it was Satan who first taught people to doubt God's word. Stanley recently said this, quote, Christians are not expected to believe what we believe based on a collection of manuscripts written by men in a time when everybody was superstitious and everybody believed in the gods and there was no modern science. No, the foundation of our faith is far more substantial than the Bible, unquote. He also said this, quote, the Bible is sacred, but not scientific, and it is something to appreciate, but it is not necessarily factual. Unquote. He's saying this in his sermon to 50,000 congregants. He said, quote, stories in the Bible may be inspirational, but not necessarily true. 
He said using the term the Bible says is not an adequate starting point or returning point for adults. The result of this type of teaching, has this departure from God's word, has inevitably led Stanley's church to celebrating all kinds of LGBTQ lifestyles, all kinds of universalism, idolatry seeping into the church. It has led the church to believe that they can build themselves a ladder into heaven just by showing up and naming the name of Christ. It doesn't matter how you're living. So we need to be very, very careful about who we are listening to regarding God speaking to us. We need to avoid with great prejudice those who would lead us away from God's written word. Listen to what Jesus himself said about God's written word. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? That was Jesus. Have you not read what God said? Jesus was referring to the Bible calling it God's spoken word. Essentially, he was saying, the Bible says. He was using that as his foundational starting point of truth in direct contradiction with Andy Stanley's false teaching. Jesus pointed to the scriptures as the foundation of truth concerning himself. This is what we have in the text today in Genesis 28. We have God speaking to us through his word and speaking about Jesus Christ. You're saying, what? I didn't, I didn't hear Jesus mentioned in the text. Well, Jacob erected the stone in the wilderness as a reminder to him and his future descendants that this event really happened. God actually spoke to him and reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant that promised the blessing of his seed. And if you remember from a last teaching, when he's referring to seed, it's referring to Christ, the becoming Messiah. And in this account, God has also spoken to us through his word, the Holy Scriptures. And John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus said that God's voice is heard in the Scriptures. Therefore, if you reject the Scriptures, you are not hearing God's voice, and you are not among his sheep. Anyway, it was God's voice that caused Jacob to raise up that rock that he rested on and raise that rock up as a monument of God's revelation. Just as God is speaking to us through his word and causes us to raise up the rock that we rest upon before the world as the pillar of truth. That rock, of course, for us is Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's my introduction. So if you remember in chapter 27 of Genesis, Um, Isaac had reached the point where he thought that he could die at any moment. He had gone blind and he wanted to therefore officially bless his firstborn son, Esau. Mark taught on this last time he taught. But with the assistance of his mother, Jacob deceived his way into the blessing that was intended for Esau. Though technically the blessing already belonged to Jacob, because if you remember, Esau had traded his birthright to Jacob for some red stew in Genesis 25. Esau didn't really take that exchange ser seriously, apparently. And apparently neither did Isaac, because Isaac still intended to give Esau the firstborn blessing. But Jacob deceived his father Isaac with the help of Rebekah. Remember, his mother helped Jacob put some goat skins on his hands and his neck so that his skin felt like uh, Esau's skin to the blind Isaac. 
so that Isaac would bless Jacob instead of Esau. And this all happened under God's decree. God decreed that this would all happen. And it prevents for us, it presents for us a prophetic picture of Israel and the church. Ironically enough, Esau was a type of Israel in that the majority of Israel throughout history did not take their role as God's elect nation seriously. Wherein nationally, they would embrace all kinds of idolatry throughout history and eventually rejected their promised Messiah. As, a, as the majority of Jews would be chanting, crucify him, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Esau's birthright was a type of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how Israel rejected the anointed one. And the red stew that Esau gave up his birthright for, that's a picture of the idolatry that Israel would embrace. That they would embrace over the word of God incarnate when they crucified him. So if Esau is a type of Israel, then Jacob is a type of the church. And just as Jacob stood before his father, disguised as his firstborn son, we as the church stand before God the Father, disguised in the righteousness of his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. So that the Father sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness and not in our sinfulness. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Now, it's, it's not, when I use this illustration, it's not that we are lying to the father like Jacob lied to Isaac. But this account serves as a prophetic illustration of substitu substitutionary atonement. Now, you might wonder, what is substitutionary atonement? What is that about? Well, it is the essence of the gospel. Jesus Christ died in our place when he was crucified on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. We deserved to be the ones placed on that cross to die and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because we are the ones who live sinful lives, not Christ. But Christ took the punishment on himself in our place when he came down, when he came down and substituted himself for us and took what we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only is our sin taken away by Christ, but Christ's righteousness, all the goodness that he did in his life, that is credited to us. Amen. He came down while we rested upon the rock. Sound familiar? And this substitutionary atonement was always God's plan, as he spoke of it 700 years in advance. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then five verses later in Isaiah 53.10 says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. In his hand. 
If Christ is our guilt offering for our sin, God will see the righteousness of Christ. He will see his seed upon us. Just like Isaac saw Esau instead of Jacob. And I emphasize these passages because there are those who profess Christ who reject this doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches and other Protestant churches too deny this clearly biblical teaching and impose their traditions on the text. What they are doing is they are attempting to build a stairway to heaven through the works that they do, rather than rest in Christ and believe in his promise as he comes down. Anyway, Isaac feared Esau would follow through with his threat to kill Jacob. So Isaac told Jacob to leave town, but also that Jacob might go and find a bride from Rebekah's family where Abraham originally came from, a place called Haran. He wanted to make sure that Jacob married well, especially after Ishmael had totally rebelled against him and his mother by marrying two Hittite women. And then to make it worse, he went to Isaac's rival brother Ishmael and married his daughter just to get his father. This is that, that rebellion, that rebellious heart that hates the things of God. It's manifested there in Ishmael, or, or I mean Esau. And then in Genesis 28.10, it says, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came toward a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. And what? We first read this. Why does the Holy Spirit have to mention in this text that Jacob used the stone as his pillow? Well, it's prophetically significant. We can't ignore the tremendous number of times a rock is used in Scripture to speak of the Lord, specifically of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Matthew 16, 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, speaking of him and the gospel, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it's no, no coincidence that the most common symbol of God in scripture is that of a rock. <laughs> and Jacob resting his head upon the rock to sleep provides for us a picture of Christ in whom we rest upon. Jesus is our rest. And I want to explore that statement a little bit more. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, this is a, a small passage out of a whole chapter. I didn't want to spend time going through the whole chapter. And it's a difficult passage, but it is clearly speaking about a Sabbath rest that remains for God's people, the church, for us to enter into that rest. 
The question is, what kind of rest is being talked about here? Is it a physical rest from physical work or a spiritual rest from spiritual works or both? This passage is often greatly misunderstood and misapplied, and there are several, several groups within and outside of Christendom that insist that the church is supposed to be still keeping the Sabbath day as the Israelites were commanded to in the Old Testament. Meaning we must do no physical work on a certain day of the week, specifically the seventh day. And they interpret this Sabbath day rest that remains for the people of God as being a physical rest that we still should be engaging in. Just as it was understood in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. These people who still hold to this Sabbath view are called Sabbatarians. But let's examine how the apostles approached the Sabbath under the New Covenant. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, the first Christians were predominantly Jews. And when the Gentiles began to receive the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Christians had a dilemma. Okay, what they were questioning what aspects of the Mosaic law that were unique to the Jews should Gentile Christians be instructed to keep in the same way? That was the question they were dealing with. Laws regarding things like circumcision, uh, dietary laws, hygiene laws, and Sabbath days. I mean, if all of the Jewish law was still to be kept for the, for the Gentile church, then there would have been no need for this council. This council that met in Jerusalem, and it's, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. Maybe this council took place maybe 15 years after Christ's resurrection. And the decision concerning what laws were to apply to the Gentiles was announced by James in Acts 15, 19. It says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. That's it. It's significant that Sabbath keeping was not one of the commands the apostles felt necessary to force upon the Gentile believers. Now, the Sabbatarian will say, well, that list in Acts 15 did not include things like murder, and we know we should still, you know, not break that law. However, as I said, the apostles were at Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem Council were contemplating laws that were unique to the Jews under the Old Covenant. The sin of murder was not unique to the Jews, but that is a sin that is written upon the hearts of all men. It's a moral law. God never commanded circumcision, the dietary laws, or Sabbath laws to the Gentiles, only to the Jews. The apostles, however, drew the line on certain aspects of the Mosaic law, saying that the Gentiles should still keep these laws. Those things being no food sacrificed to idols, or the eating of strangled animals, or consuming their blood. All those things were linked to idol worship. It, could, it would seem... If you were participated in that, it would be seen as participating in idol worship. And of course, the apostles drew the line on all forms of sexual immorality, which had become quite common in Roman culture um, and also was a common element of idolatry as well. However, not working on the Sabbath is never mentioned. The Sabbath laws were not laws written upon the hearts of men. No, the Sabbath 
law was a ceremonial law in nature, like the dietary laws, circumcision, clothing, hygiene laws, the temple laws. So if there was an expectation for Gentiles to keep the Sabbath, this would have been the time for the apostles to bring it up. The Sabbatarian will say, well, that's an argument from silence. However, it's not an argument from silence because Paul said this in Colossians 2.16. Paul said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul was saying, don't let anyone bring conviction upon you for not keeping the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. Paul lumped the Sabbath day laws in with animal sacrifices, circumcision, and all the other things that they did as shadows. They were shadows of Christ, meaning the purpose of those laws were to be pictures of Christ when he came. And those ceremonial laws are fulfilled in his coming. The true purpose and substance of the Sabbath was not as much to give people rest from physical labor one day a week as it was to be a prophetic picture of Christ in whom we rest in every day for our salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor. This is Christ speaking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the same kind of rest that is being described in Hebrews 4. A rest that is far greater than a one-day-a-week rest from physical labor. This was the theme of the book of Hebrews, showing how the new covenant is a better covenant than the old, and how all those things were shadows of a greater thing. It is the spiritual rest that is linked to faith in Christ that lifts the burden of our guilt. So the ceremonial laws do not apply to us as they applied to Israel. But they do apply to the church in the spiritual sense as we observe those laws in our devotion to Christ. Christ, of course, is our sacrifice for sin instead of the animals. Also, our circumcision is that of the heart, not a physical circumcision. And that's manifested through re repentance. Also, just as the point of the dietary laws, the clothing laws, and the hygiene laws were to make Israel unique and not like the world, set apart, our faithfulness to serve Christ and love his kingdom sets us apart from the world as being different. And in Christ, we rest from our works wherein we do not strive to earn our salvation like many are trying to do right now in the world. But instead, we rest upon the rock in his finished work. But regarding keeping the Sabbath day, Paul also wrote this, Romans 14, 5. He said, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So if the Sabbath days were a requirement for the Roman Gentile church, such a statement would be very confusing. Essentially, Paul was saying, if you want to hold up a day above another to honor God, that's fine. But he never reestablished a requirement to keep the Sabbath day laws as they were required under the Old Covenant. Some may claim that Sunday became the Christian Sabbath, but Scripture never says that. 
Scripture just says that the early church gathered for worship on Sundays. They didn't call it the Sabbath day, nor did they impose the Jewish Sabbath day laws on Sunday. That was a tradition that came along later in the Eastern church in the fourth century. And then Thomas Aquinas proposed it to be the official Roman Catholic doctrine in the West in the 1200s. Now, the Sabbatarian may object to this argument and quote Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the Sabbatarian will look at me and say, I'm acting like the person Jesus is talking about. I'm going to be least in the kingdom of heaven because they're saying I'm relaxing on this commandment and teaching others to do the same. Okay, well, let's, let's think this through. <laughs> By applying what Jesus said in that way, saying we must keep the whole law, the law hasn't passed away, that we must keep it just as Israel did, then we should also be preaching and practicing the sacrificing of animals. We should also be teaching Christians to not wear mixed fibers in their clothing. We should be condemning the consumption of shellfish or pork, even though God specifically told Peter that he made those things clean. But the apostles never taught the church to keep these ceremonial laws. So then what was Jesus talking about when he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did he mean by that? Well, Jesus was not discarding any aspect of the law, but rather he was emphasizing how in him the law is fulfilled. He discarded the practice, but maintained the application. The ceremonial laws find their meaning and purpose in him, not by the keeping of the letter of the law, but recognizing and keeping the spirit of the law. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, Christ has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to the, to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have an even, have even more glory. So the ministry of death carved in letters of stone was being brought to an end. That's what the text says. It was temporary, just as the glowing of Moses' face was temporary. If you remember that story. But the ministry of the Spirit under the law of the new covenant, or the Spirit of the law under the new covenant, which is accomplished in Christ, has an eternal glory, far greater than the purpose of the letter of the law. The Sabbatarian may object to that and say, well, those ceremonial laws like animal sacrifices and the dietary laws, they weren't in the Ten Commandments, but the Sabbath law is. Therefore, that law is more important than the others. However, that is a distinction that is not established in Scripture. Therefore, it is an eisegetical tradition, meaning Scripture never says that the Ten Commandments are more important than the other laws. That is a man-made tradition. 
The Ten Commandments were specifically given to the Jews as a summary of the 613 Mosaic laws established in the Old Testament. Jesus even summarized the Ten Commandments into two. Love your neighbor and love yourself. Or love God and love yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, of course, the Ten Commandments do include nine universal moral laws that happen to apply to all people, not just the Jews. Laws that were written by God on the conscience of man. Romans 2 tells us this. But the Sabbath law was a ceremonial law given only to the Jews under the Old Covenant as a picture or a shadow of Christ. However, laws against murder, idolatry, lying and theft and all kinds of sexual sin, dishonoring your parents, blasphemy, covetousness, these were all specifically addressed and forbidden in the New Testament under the New Covenant, unlike the Sabbath day law. That being said, the Sabbath certainly has a spiritual application for all people today in that Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And that brings us back to the shadows of Christ in Genesis 28 as Jacob rested on the rock. He was given a vision of a ladder that was not built by the hands of man, a ladder that bridged the gap between heaven and earth. Interestingly, this stands in direct contrast with what Nimrod tried to do at the Tower of Babel, trying to build a tower to heaven. And that's what works-based religions strive for today. They try to build a stairway to heaven by their own hands, using sensory experiences, <laughs> and through the dilution, the diminishment, and the dismissal of God's word. Sadly, this is what most of the world does today in their, in their own minds, even people that are not Christian. They create for themselves a stairway to heaven, and they do this by redefining the word good. More, probably more than 90% of the world's population will identify themselves as good people. Um, but only those who truly know Christ, who genuinely identify themselves um, as Christians, will recognize they are not good people. Even us born-again Christians who recognize we are sinners by nature and feel bad for that, we don't feel bad enough for our sin. But society goes around telling everyone to feel good about yourselves and have a strong, positive self-image. Lift yourself up. God's word tells us that we are dead in our we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were depraved wretches. And if not for God restraining our sinfulness, we would be utterly evil. So we don't pretend to lift ourselves up to God by redefining God's standard of good, which is sinless perfection. No, we rest in the only one who was sinless and perfect. We rest upon the rock as God bridges the gap for us with the ladder upon which he sends his messengers, the angels, to do his work in us. Jacob's ladder is therefore another picture of Jesus Christ through whom God speaks his word to us. But after God gave this vision to Jacob, let's see how Jacob responded. In 28.16, So then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This was a life-changing, life-altering event. God awakened Jacob to his reality. Prior to this, Jacob had a knowledge of Yahweh, but he did not know him. 
And I can relate to how Jacob felt is this was similar to my reaction back at that goth bar on September 13th, 2001, <laughs> when I had my own awakening to Christ. It seemed like I had encountered the gate of heaven as Jacob described that place. Jesus is also called the gate or the door. John 10, 7 says, so Jesus said to them, again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There are thousands of voices out there saying, follow me. But we are here today because we heard the voice of our shepherd. We were led by God to the gate, who is Jesus Christ. Everything here in this text in Genesis 28 points to Christ. Jacob's rock, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's rest, and of course, God's word to Jacob. And this place, once named separation, Jacob calls the gate of heaven and the house of God. For it is through the gate, who is Christ, that we, the church, become the house of God. But there is one more aspect of this passage that is vital to understand, the covenantal promise of Jacob. In verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a a full tenth to you. Now, this is an unfortunate translation that most English translations utilize. They make it sound like Jacob is saying, God, if you do this, then I will worship you. But that is not what the original language is saying. Uh, the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary says the context of this passage demands that the original language um, the word if that starts off there is better translated since or seeing that. Therefore, the passage should read, then Jacob made a vow saying, since God will be with me or seeing that God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So this was his response to what God had revealed to him. He was on fire for the Lord and he was giving a vow of covenantal obedience because God had already done the work. And this is what God brings about to us when someone truly meets God, when they truly hear the voice of their Savior. When they encounter the gate of heaven, Jesus Christ, and become the temple of his Holy Spirit. We are devoted to want to obey God. To live for him because he died for us. This was the experience that Jacob had, and this is why he made this vow of obedience to God after already receiving God's promise. And this vow was Jacob's response to God's election of Jacob. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 2, such a powerful passage, starting at verse 1. 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, our salvation is predestined, but part of what we are predestined to is to be conformed by God to the image of Christ and walk in those works of righteousness. This is the evidence of our election in Christ, evidence of a genuine saving faith, in that we are resting upon the rock. The rest that we have in Christ is not a green light for us to walk in sin, but it is the key that unlocks the shackles of sin, freeing us to walk in those works of righteousness that God has called us to. So that like Jacob, we will say, since he took my sin upon himself, being crucified on the cross and resurrected on the third day, since God has drawn me out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, since he has taken out my heart of stone and has given me a living heart, since he has given me faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and since he has granted me repentance, I will walk in the works that he has prepared beforehand for me to walk in. I will mortify my flesh. And those works may be difficult. They may be uncomfortable. They will require a dying to self, a dying to pride, a dying to our flesh. But our joy is not to be found in ourselves. Our joy is not to be found in our pride or in our flesh. Those are worldly paths to joy, which are fleeting. Our joy, true abiding joy, is found in Christ and living for him and for his kingdom. And in this experience, Jacob had sleeping on the pillow of stone. God provides for us another picture of his sovereign redemption plan. Truly, God's Christ is found on every page of this book, from Genesis to Revelation, and it is glorious. So let's end there. We'll pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, Lord. As we peel away that onion, and, and it just becomes more amazing and amazing as we go deeper into your word, Lord God, that the, the truth of who Christ is is revealed in every page, Father God. And you, as you give us these shadows and pictures in the Old Testament and their glorious fulfillment in the new. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would continue to dive deeper into your word and never abandon it, as many in the so-called church are doing. 
But Lord, that we would stand firm upon what you have said, Lord God, and that would be the source of our joy. That promise that you have made to us, Lord, and let us not be deceived by the liars, and the wolves that are out there in this world trying to lead us away from you. Father God, help us, Lord God, to be steadfast in the faith that you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.